I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is your host, Matt Dixon. And we start with a little apology, at least a little apology in advance. If the sound doesn't sound quite right today, well, I don't have my trusty microphone with me. I'm on the road. I'm heading to the pro camp down in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take this chance to record. But no trusty microphone. So you're going to have to bear with me with the audio if it does sound a little bit crummy today. But I promise you, it is a good one. Today, we're going to go into the weeds a little bit. We're going to actually dive into a little deeper context of a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago that focused on the art of coaching and being coached. You see, following that episode, we had several questions around drawing the parallels between coaching and leadership and management within the corporate world. Lots of requests for helping draw the parallels and outlining some of the practical skills to, well, ultimately improve leadership and management. And so what we wanted to do today was talk about culture, set up, and ultimately help you, if you are a manager or a leader, to create sustained performance. Why not? Let's go a little deeper. Now, on today, on the spectrum of performance, we're going to draw those parallels. You obsessive triathletes out there, stay patient. There's lots coming for you. But today, we're going to go a bit more global in our performance perspective. But before we get there, Let's get back to that jingle. We like the way he thinks, serious with a wink. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. This week, Word of the Week, and it's back for the first time in 2019, is, well it's two words, kids meals. You see, I think it's a myth that kids will not eat their veggies, and I believe that While children are, well, some children are pickier than others, as a society, we do nothing but impede the appropriate modelling for children's eating habits into their adult life. Now, I'm not bringing this to your attention because I believe that children should never be allowed cake or eat a little candy sometimes. And while others completely dismiss any access to sugar, with a little bit of moderation, it's all part of the fabric of life. But with this said, go to any restaurant, and then review the children's menu. And typically, you're going to see a menu something like this. Chicken tenders. Freaking ban the horrible things, please. Mac and cheese. Hot dog. Cheese pizza. The list goes on. Now, we know, not think, know, that appropriate eating habits are anchored around, as the English would say, three square meals. Protein, fat, veggies, a little bit of starchy carb. And we also know that an overconsumption of processed foods and high sugar content is playing havoc with the Western status of health and, well, let's call it the waistline. So how can we model future positive eating habits when our children's meals at restaurants are typically void of vegetables and heavy in quick fix, high volume, low quality, and ultimately, I know, low cost eating? Imagine if we did the same thing modeling around speech and manners. We raised our children to demand, to shout, to abuse, to argue. We promoted effing and blinding and grabbing and hitting. And then, as they mature into adults, we asked for a shift in behavior. We asked them to be cooperative, well-mannered, thoughtful, pushing countless, I'm sure, educational campaigns and the value and benefit of collaboration. We'd think we're all mad, wouldn't we? Well, in eating, I think we are. 
we have a chance to model children's eating behavior. And yes, it begins at homes. But great meals are bountiful in veggies and good choices become the backbone. And then of course, allow our kids to eat, enjoy a few treats and a little excess on occasion. And that is why the word of the week is kids meals. Because what we should have in every children's meal in every restaurant is fruit and vegetables. If not, demand it. We say it enough, we might just begin to elicit change. After all, ultimately, restaurants want to please us and they likely feed our kids garbage as it's number one, cheap and easy, and number two, in demand. They think it's in demand. So instead, let's demand something else. Fruits and vegetables, kids meals. Now, in a very appropriate manner, and I'm glad I can say it this week in this context, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. Management, coaching. Today is by request, the extension of our conversation on the art of coaching and being coached, an extension into management and leadership. We truly go corporate and we try and draw the lessons from performance within a set of world-class athletes into performance within, well, business teams. We explore how, I believe, the lessons of how we approach elite performance can ultimately help managers be effective and get the most out of their teams. Now, I think it's important as we dive into this conversation for me to provide some context with coaching and management. Let's consider a typical state within the corporate landscape. So the most common thing that occurs is promotion or a set of promotion end up evolving out of someone being highly effective at what they are originally employed to do. They are great, for lack of a better phrase, pilots. But these highly effective doers are not necessarily, and in my experience, not commonly, really skilled at leveraging themselves and helping their team perform. So while they're great doers, how does one become great developer of team of doers? The same, of course, applies in sports. There is a real reason that the vast majority of the most successful athletes out there, our household names, are ultimately not the best coaches. The analogy that I use is that to transition to highly effective coaching or management is similar to transitioning from that top pilot to suddenly being asked to take up the role of instructor, air traffic controller, and yes, ultimately, sometimes, emergency services. As a manager, your success is wholly dependent on others. And so you can't become a bus driver where you pack a whole load of great talent onto your bus and drive them to success. Your success and your results is based on creating a squadron of wonderful pilots. And so our mission today is sustained performance. And without further ado, let's dive in. So by the end of this conversation, we're going to talk about a framework and a process and actually ultimately five main bullets to help you become a more effective leader. But before we do that, we should talk about performance globally. And I think there are two main considerations. So the first is remembering or at least outlining a performance model for you, the leader. You see, you can only create a great team if you're a pretty able person and leader yourself. And then the second part, the real nitty-gritty of the meat and potatoes is setting up a framework and culture to allow 
all within your team to thrive and ultimately find sustained performance. So let's start with you. Now, remember, every single piece of coaching at Purple Patch is anchored in the framework of the four pillars, endurance, strength, nutrition, and recovery. And this isn't just lip service. We want all of our athletes to live by those four pillars and all of the coaching conversations to focus and be anchored across those components. Now, if we apply this methodology to our professional athletes, it is the recipe of these elements that enable underlined sustained performance. So where there is harmony between training, a backbone of nutrition and all of the elements that come under nutrition, integrated recovery, including sleep, and then we get performance across the team. So it's right in the center of the interaction, training, strength, and of course, endurance, nutrition, and recovery. And that's what creates repeatable, predictable, sustainable performance. And this is a very, very simple, but applicable across all levels and all genders, performance model. Now, how do we apply it to the performance-minded executive? Well, the first part of the model of it is, of course, work. And yes, that is a dominant part of an executive's life. But the classic do more, work more, sleep under the desk to achieve is not a sustainable performance model. In fact, in my opinion, it's actually a statement of performance stupidity. The most effective, the most effective executives finds what we would call maybe the performance zone. And that is slightly differently applied, but the same model as we use for our professional athletes. We have work, and that's of course the centerpiece. But in support of that is the recipe that is blended out of training and what I would call rejuvenation. Now training isn't just exercise, but training itself integrates structured and progressive exercise. And of course, that should be a combination of strength and endurance. And it cannot be isolated, but it must, in order for you to be effective, integrated into that recipe of work. Now, I think it's worth pointing out here, just because you exercise doesn't make you suddenly a high-performance executive. Because the third part of the recipe to get the blend right, the recipe right, is what we call rejuvenation. And what I mean by rejuvenation is a host of positive habits to offset the stress of both work and training. So those positive habits include, and you might be able to guess some of these, but sleep, nutrition, hydration, fueling post-training, that word deliberately, and I think most importantly, something to enable you to step away and escape a recharge, a recharge physically and emotionally. This cannot be just diving into more training or exercise. This might be your children, your family, your friends. I don't care, building model aeroplanes, building model trains, whatever it is that enables you an emotional and practical and physical escape from the rigors of both training stress and work stress. And when we get this right, when we get this, and I think what many would call it an overused word, balance right of the interaction of all three, we end up finding sustained performance. Now most of this, if you're a frequent listener, shouldn't be new to you. We talk about the performance model and we talk about the pillars of performance. But as mentioned prior, what happens 
if your success as a leader now, as a manager, is dependent on others? How do you set up a performance culture and ultimately effectively coach? Because guess what, as a leader and a manager, you are a coach. So I think there are two big things. The first is setting up the environment. That's the baseline. And I believe that you can only be a great manager if you proactively set up a culture and environment that encourages people to look after themselves. So to ponder, you might succeed with a personal approach to your health, fitness and performance, but to facilitate big success, you must help your team thrive with that same model and mindset. But the second part is the topic of today. And that's then with a great environment, you looking after yourself, how do you then set up a structure of coaching? Really what I'm saying is the question of how do you gain leverage out of your team? Well, I think in order to get there, we have to think about both the pro athlete and the high performing executive that we just talked about. And I'm lucky because I've got to work with many of both. And when we actually dissect and look at the key traits of the best performing professionals over a long time and the highest performing executives that I've ever worked with, we can draw over the years a set of traits or characteristics of excellence, I like to call it. And so to set up the framework and process of coaching, it's worth looking at those traits. Who are the best of the best and what makes them tick? Because some of the highest performers and frankly impressive CEOs have consistent traits that are paralleled with our pros. So the good news is the traits are the same. Pro athlete, elite performer in the boardroom, they're exactly the same. So let's go through and remind ourselves of those characteristics of excellence. So the first, undoubtedly, is what we call the North Star mission. The highest performers always have a multi-year lens on their projects or their approaches. So they don't just come in and try and eat what's in front of them, but they plan ahead. The second component then, underneath this mission or purpose, where we're driving towards, is short-term measurable goals. Now that's not just planning your race season for athletes, but it's actually to identifying intentional focus. What should I take action on to move my performance needle within the scope of my North Star mission? Now while that becomes quite results driven, short-term measurable goals as a part of a multi-year purpose. The third characteristic, and it is consistent across both populations, is the real passion comes less for the results while they're important and more for the journey. And that's why having a mission is important and having a set of stepping stone or measurable goals is great, but the passion for the journey is consistent. They love the process of the doing. So what else do we have in some of these characteristics? Big picture thinking. This is what we might call perspective, being able to come out of the weeds and look back and look forward and understand the context of their doing right now. Highly effective. The next trait, consistency. So they are constantly looking to pursue consistency. And the driver behind that is habit driven. 
In the world of a mess of inputs, thinking about all of the components that make up being an executive or all of the decisions around nutrition or equipment or training methodology that a pro athlete has to pursue, most of the most successful I'll love to comp dial down complex to simple and look for the habits that are going to move the performance needle the most. So if you could think about perfection, not a great thing to pursue in any driven conquest, you might be able to identify a checklist of 25 or 30 things that could make up perfection. But the greatest are the ones that understand and pursue the top three, four or five things that are going to make the biggest impact. We call that a purple patch, nailing the basics. The final components, accountability and feedback. There's a certain humility with the greatest people that I've worked with in which they don't just thrive on, but they demand accountability and feedback. And as I'll say later, feedback isn't telling you where you went wrong, but feedback is helping you navigate the path towards ultimately that North Star mission. And of course, as a backbone of that, leaders need leaders. So another trait, and it's consistent, is they're highly coachable. The best and the most coachable. It sounds like a paradox, but the best are most coachable. Finally, evolve or die. Wonderful lifelong learners. I've never met a great high elite performer in life or sport that doesn't have a constant thirst for understanding the why and a constant thirst for growing. And ultimately, the last piece is they're highly resilient and adaptable. They are, as we like to say, change-able. They have both physical and emotional characteristics that enable them to go on the journey to navigate the inevitable ups and downs and course corrections that it takes to ultimately pursue very lofty goals. And they don't just enable themselves to actually survive change, but thrive in change. All of this is very interesting. But now what we have to do is we have to look at those traits and out of those traits, try and draw from them, put them into action. So let's talk about direct management in action. And as we do this, I think we should look through and say, what does it actually mean to be a coach or a manager? What is that pursuit? Well, I think there are three main things that we look for. The first is that your role is to set a path, a very, very clear path. As we then navigate along that path, the second is to hold your team to account to executing their jobs on that path and provide appropriate and suitable feedback to ensure that we're progressing. And then finally, of course, we must facilitate results. We must actually get a yield, a positive yield from all of the energy and all of the work that's being put on, not just by you, but by your team. You see, remember that a great coach or a great manager cannot be the primary doer. They cannot be the pilot. We are after a squadron of great pilots. So let's go step by step and we can go through a process drawing off the traits I just went through to look for five main steps that I think are always consistent in great coaching or management. Now to get there, what we're gonna do is we're gonna compare me, the coach, by the way, feel free to input your favorite coach of choice, this isn't about me, and you, the management in a more corporate setting. These five things we're going to go through are the North Star, 
the goals, nailing the basics, feedback and accountability, and ultimately empowerment. But under each one, I'm gonna try and draw an example of the coaching and my lens on it, and then apply it to the management. So we begin, the North Star. So as a coach, my job, as mentioned before, is to create a multi-year roadmap. So if we take Tim Reed, who came along in about 2012 and ended up pursuing the journey towards 2016 becoming a world champion. Our job right at the start was not just to say, what races should we race this year, Tim? What are the intervals you should do on the bike or the run or in swimming? But instead create a multi-year roadmap, a North Star to it. But a second part of it that is often missed for coaching is securing athlete understanding and buy-in. Because a multi-year roadmap is only appropriate and effective if the athlete understands, appreciates the sentiment behind it and the path they're going, and buys into the journey. For a leader or manager, it's very similar. Your role is to set a very clear path. But I would say attach to that path of where you're going over the year or the coming years is to attach purpose and meaning behind it. It has to have a reason for being. This is where we're going, and this is why, and this is what the outcome is, and this is what it means. And if you have that North Star, just like coaching an athlete, you have to ensure that it's very clear and that the members of your team understand what it is. Clarity becomes a critical component. Underneath the North Star or the mission, our purpose, then come the short-term goals. So yes, in a coaching lens for me, that could be races or stepping stones. But quite often I tend to less anchor races as the goals and instead talking about what do you need to do to improve as an athlete. So a great example is Jesse Thomas, one of my professional athletes, we have a multi-year vision of him becoming one of the best triathletes in the world. He was successful at doing that. And the first couple of the years, this year your goal is to radically improve swimming because you swim like you've got anchored down by cement. And so we are gonna go through a specific purpose where we want to improve your swimming. It's a part of a multi-year vision to help him become a more complete triathlete but right now the short-term goal is swimming. And so we have to try and identify these goals within context or linking to that North Star. And the second part then, coming out of those goals, isn't just to say this is what we want to achieve, but for enabling me as a coach to get the athlete to understand their job. What role do they have to play? How? Do their actions buy into setting up the goals and the successful completion of them and of course progress them along their journey. So on the side of the manager, it's really important that you set up short-term goals and they must tie into the North Star. But the reason for doing it is to facilitate intentional focus of action. I love that phrase, intentional focus. Whenever you're operating in a business team, There is always so much to focus on. But the real management skill is to identify the key things that will move the performance needle. And that is identifying and anchoring into the mission. But the second part of that, just like my coaching role, is to get your team members to understand their role. What is their role? 
within these goals and how were their actions buy into actually facilitating progression towards the North Star. So now you have a framework. What's next? Nail the basics. Now you're getting into the doing and you're facilitating the team doing the doing. And so for me as a coach, we talk about nailing the basics so that we can help our athlete and athletes navigate what we call the blizzard of bullshit. There are so many inputs out there. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But how do we actually go through all of the inputs and identify in Purple Patch its seven habits that move the performance needle 95% of the way to success? And if they can become a master of those habits, and then progression is almost guaranteed. It's no different for you, the manager. You have your goals. And if we know that there are 25 things that could create perfection, you want to identify the absolute five things individually that your team members should focus on to move their performance needle that contribute to those goals and ultimately the mission. And so nailing the basics for you is coming up out of the weeds, gaining perspective and saying, these are the elements to focus on. It all sounds very basic and it all sounds very simple, but I promise you, these are the performance needling elements. The fourth component, feedback and accountability. Do you remember we talked about the characteristics? They don't just ask for, they demand feedback and accountability. But for me as a coach, I really have two roles in this. The first is I have to hold them accountable to their goals. So a story here is just a couple of weeks ago, I had an athlete approach me, one of our athletes who's a very good age grouper, and said, I want to become a professional triathlete, so I'm going to go all in. My response, are you sure? Are you really sure? Go away and think about it. And the reason for that, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was because their behavior is going to be held accountable to those goals. But I'm also in that accountability and feedback loop. My role is not just to hold them accountable, but it's to inspire them to go further than they ever imagined they could possibly do. For you as a manager, you have to link your feedback and accountability to the mission. So remember, we talked about setting the clear path with great clarity and facilitating intentional focus with every one of your team understanding their role. Now with accountability, you have to hold them account to their actions and link it to the mission. And the other component of feedback, which I think is really important for you, is that feedback isn't just telling someone where they went wrong. And feedback isn't a big pat on the back and well done, you're going great. Feedback is trying to be just in time to help them course correct so that they can be successful along their goals. You see, the dirty secret is that performance is not a linear journey. It's chaotic and it's going to require lots of adjustments and a lot of what we call course corrections. And so your job is to come out of the weeds, get out of the doing and help them course correct as much as they can. And that's where you can draw on your experience of probably why you got promoted in the first place of being a great doer. The final component, empowerment. I always say my success is my irrelevance. And that's because if I'm coaching an athlete, I want them to be empowered to own their journey. And the same applies for you as a manager. Remember, you want a squadron. 
you don't want to be the pilot. So the only way that you're going to ultimately be a successful and thriving and loved and respected manager is to become a wonderful, wonderful air traffic controller. And that, ladies and gentlemen, highlights what management really is. It's coaching. And you can develop and you can become successful at it. So I wish you all of luck. But now, as promised, questions from you, the listeners. We have many, so I'm going to choose a couple. And before we dive in, I want to give a very quick personal shout out. Christopher Kinzer, Michael Hall, thank you independently, both of you, for your very kind words on the Fast Track Triathlete and how it's helped your performance journey. I've got to say your messages touch me, and it means a lot to receive such validation. And so before we dive into these questions, I just want to give you a salute and a thank you and really appreciate hearing the positive words of how it's helped you on your own each independent performance journey. So the two questions today, the first one, and I hope I get my pronunciation right, Ala Kavatova. Ala, I hope that my pronunciation is right, but I'm going to abbreviate your question. I love the show. I find the mindset and the approach really helpful, but I cannot ask to help why you only have four pillars, endurance, strength, nutrition, and recovery. Why don't you add in a fifth, which is mindset? The mind is critical to performance, so shouldn't it be a pillar? I think it's a great question, and it's not the first, you're not the first person to ask me this, Allah. And the truth is, look, it could be its own independent pillar. Psychology, mindset, it is an absolute anchor. But I think it is such a part of coaching and such a part of athletic success that I think mindset permeates all components of those pillars and overall performance. So I don't see it as its own independent pillar. And instead, we try and drive what is the appropriate mindset as it comes to endurance and everything that relates under the endurance banner from training to, of course, race performance. What is the appropriate mindset as it applies to strength? What is the appropriate mindset when it comes to nutrition or fueling? How should we think about it? What should be the emotional attachments? And ultimately applying that same pillar to recovery. And so I, I agree, it's a critical component. And in fact, where the mind leads, the body ultimately will follow as long as it's physically able to do so. And so you cannot thrive and create sustainable performance without a massive focus on mindset and happiness and where you can position your psychological mind space going into racing and your perspective on everything with performance. And so I think that confidence, joy and happiness and race readiness is a critical component. But quite simply, for the sake of education and for the sake of, of actually putting a methodology into action, we end up looking at it as a permutation into all of the pillars. And so I don't want you to think about not having a pillar of mindset means that I don't think it's important. I absolutely do. But I see it as a blanket or a driver behind all of the pillars. The second question, Jim Slabber. Uh, purple patch athlete. I know Jim. Hello, Jim. Shifting to a nine to 10 day cycle. So Jim's question is, have you any success on moving from a virtual training week, specifically a nine day week? as I feel like it affords more recovery time and a consistent spread of days into threes. The downside, of course, is the impact of the routine, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. 
Well, I think it's a really refreshing mindset. And in fact, I have used before, Jim, a 10-day cycle for athletes and for all levels of athletes where we've broken it through 10 days of training, three days of sort of recuperation and refreshment. But what I found consistently and interestingly, even for pro athletes that, of course, are less bound to the traditional seven-day cycles, is that globally it's not how our mind works and for time-starved people practically it's not how our lives are structured and so I've actually gone both ways and if I was strictly thinking in a physiological sense I can see the argument for going into nine to ten day cycles but what we prefer to do at least is try and stretch the boundaries of integrating recovery and thinking about three-week cycles so rather than just saying it's broken into seven days, instead I would argue that I go through 21-day cycles. Seven, seven days, three weeks, 21, in case anyone is mathematically challenged like me. And so we go through a typical work of a week of work, which is typically a strength endurance type week. Then we go through a second week, which is a bit more of a pacing and maybe a speed week. And then the third week that incorporates both a few days of recuperation and then a trackable and repeatable, very hard, typically weekend session. And by repeating that, that creates a 21-day mindset where we have great plasticity if we need to incorporate more recovery if necessary. And so while I break down training weeks into seven-day cycles, it's really a multi-week, 21-day cycle of work. That's the way, the way that I think about it. And then we have the rejuvenation being just two, three, or four days within that 21 days, but then isolated single or two-day blocks where you have a bit more refreshing. And so I love your thoughts, and I think it's great, and there's nothing wrong with a nine to 10-day cycle. It's wonderful. It's just when I try and apply it to time start living and the way that we are so trained as human beings, I find that over the long haul, it doesn't get people to adhere to what I want as a coach quite as well. And so it's really like how do you skin a cat? There's different ways, but for me, 21 day cycles. So guys, thanks so much for your questions. I look forward to receiving them. I like filtering through them and I really look forward to answering more soon. So if you do want to answer questions, you can go across the whole spectrum. It's questions at purplepatchfitness.com. That's questions with an S at purplepatchfitness.com. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm here to help. And folks, that's the end. It was definitely a goodie. Next week, well, as you heard at the start, I'm off to pro camp. So we're going to have a specific edition around the professional athletes and what we can learn from them. We might even get a few of the pros onto the mic. Who knows? And who knows what they'll say. And then we're going to return and cover a really important subject, addiction. We have an incredible story that is truly close to home for myself and Purple Patch on overcoming addiction and then the integration and use of sports to facilitate a whole new lease on life. So stay tuned. But for now, I hope you enjoyed We've gone down a rabbit hole around coaching and management. Next week, we're off to the pros. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. 
Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers. Cheers.